You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Friends, we hoped, we hoped that the war between the Ukraine and Russia would have ended long ago. We hoped that our nation would come together rather than continue to splinter after the last election. We hoped that the bag of chips we opened was more than 33% full of chips. Yeah? We hoped that the new job would really fulfill us. We hoped that we would have found a spouse by now. We hoped that when we went to the dryer, all our socks would be there when we got there. We hoped that our holiday tables had fewer political conversations, more depth. We hoped that the friendships that we had in college would last forever. We hoped that the Packers would win the Super Bowl. Oh, just me on that one. All right. Fair enough. That's fine. That's fine. We hoped that shootings in our nation would cease. We hoped that cancer wouldn't take that loved one away. We hoped for peace in the Middle East. We hoped. The name for that feeling of letdown confusion and sadness and angst is disappointment. It's the feeling that arrives when the things that we've hoped for, the things that we've placed so much effort into believing and pushing for, have failed to come, either in the timing or in the way we expected. And disappointment is something we're all too familiar with. In fact, sociologists and authors are now starting to claim that the primary American emotion is disappointment. Much of this has to do with what researchers at the University of Michigan have termed the myth of progress and upward mobility. It's a myth that we are sold in our culture, that if we just do things the right way, things will constantly get better. Life is always up and to the right. That's the idea. And that works on a personal level. We're sold the idea that some combination of hard work and good intentions will lead us to more health, to more wealth, to more peace. So get the good grades, get into the good college. That'll mean you'll get a good job, which means you'll make good money, which means you'll find a good partner, which means you'll buy a good house, which means you'll have a good family, which means you'll have peace, right? Upward mobility. And that works on a societal level as well, the myth of progress. We're sold the idea that voting for the right candidate, serving the right social cause, coming up with the right scientific or technological advancement will really solve our problems. It will bring us life and peace. It's just a matter of saner heads prevailing. And so the result is that many of us in our culture put our hopes in those things. We expect them to bring us the peace and justice in life we're looking for. But then life happens. Things don't really work that way. Our personal lives aren't up and to the right. They're filled with setbacks, unexpected losses. In our society, for as much effort as we've poured into governments and ideologies and technologies, it's just as fractured, just as divided, just as isolated as it's ever been. And because we're set up with the expectation in all those things that they'd all go well, that means that we're often ill-equipped to deal with suffering and disappointment when it comes. We weren't given the tools. We thought that everything would go well for us. And so all we're often left with is disappointment. There's a great author named Walker Percy who wrote about this dynamic in his book Lost in the Cosmos. He said this, The peculiar predicament of the present-day self surely came to pass as a consequence of the disappointment of the high expectations of the self as it entered the age of science and technology. The main emotion of the adult Northeastern American who has all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is disappointment. Mm -hmm. 
And then he goes on to list all of the disappointments we face. And I think many of us in this room would find ourselves in a similar spot. He says, work is disappointing. In spite of all the talk about making work more creative and self-fulfilling, most people hate their jobs. And with good reason. Most work in modern technological societies is intolerably dull and repetitive. I worked a job that had like three digital screens that I just did this at for eight hours a day. School is dis yeah, I heard somebody else, amen, right? School is disappointing. If science is exciting and art is exhilarating, the schools and universities have achieved the not inconsiderable feat of rendering both dull. Politics are disappointing. Most young people turn their backs on politics, not because of the lack of excitement of politics as it is practiced, but because of the shallowness, the venality, the image making as these are perceived through the media, which is one of technology's greatest achievements. And the churches are disappointing, even for most believers. If Christ brings us new life, it is all the more remarkable that the church, the bearer of this good news, should be among the most discouraged and discouraging institutions of the age. And the alternatives to the institutional churches are even more grossly disappointing. From TV evangelists with their blow-drying hairdos to California cults led by prosperous gurus ignored in India but celebrated in La Jolla. We live in a culture of disappointment. And because that experience is so common, we are constantly being given ways to respond to our disappointment. Our culture is tr constantly trying to reckon with it. There's two main responses that our culture gives us. It's the sentimental response and the cynical response. The sentimental response goes like this. We're taught to just move on from our disappointments as quickly as possible. We need to feel good. Anything that causes us not to feel good, we need to shun or push away or ignore. We don't want to deal with uncomfortability or ambiguity. And so we speed past it by numbing or pleasuring. We drink, we medicate, we watch TV, we binge, we chase after sex. Anything to prevent us from dealing with disappointment. And you see this approach in a lot of the language we use in our culture. Good vibes only, yeah? Don't worry about that disappointment. Don't worry about that pain. Good vibes only here. Or when somebody breaks up with someone else, we say there's always more fish in the sea. As if that loss, that relationship, that disappointment was a fish you could throw back and there's just another one that you could get. It's overlooking the pain, ignoring the disappointment. Everything happens for a reason. Oh man, it sounds so wise and it's such garbage. It sounds so wise and it really just ignores the pain doesn't deal with it. It pushes it to the side. It happens for a reason. It's fine. And Christians, by the way, are sometimes the worst at this. We say all sorts of sentimental things. When someone dies, we say, God gained another angel. First, bad theology. Humans aren't angels. Different things in the Bible. Second, it makes it seem like death is a good thing. It's not. God never gives you more than you can handle. Garbage. That's actually antithetical to the gospel message. It runs counter to the gospel. The whole point of the gospel is that we are needy people who cannot handle life on our own, that we are in need of God in order to handle life. The Christian view is not that God gives us tools for self-empowerment, but that God meets us in our need and lifts us up by his power. Life will be more than we can handle. That's the point. That's why we need Jesus. Look at what Paul says in the midst of his own persecution back in the first century. He says this in 2 Corinthians. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. That sounds like more than he can handle to me. But look at how he finishes the passage. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. 
Friends, here's the problem with the sentimental approach. It doesn't actually deal with our disappointment. It just ignores it, avoids it, minimizes it. And that means it's not looking at reality rightly. It's not looking at the suffering we go through rightly. And so many times in our culture, we swing the pendulum the other way. We go to the cynical approach. In the cynical approach, we're taught to sink into despair and disappointment. This is like the emo boy from the mid-2000s. Yeah. <laughs> I knew there was one in this room somewhere. This is the Gen Z and millennial specialty. We are cynical people. We buy into the notion that nothing's really going to bring lasting healing life and goodness. And we end up sinking into that cynicism. It creates a culture of blaming. Our losses are always the fault of someone else. Just turn on your TV, open a social media app, and you'll see blaming. We only see and speak about the negative things. We constantly complain. We're unable to find, unable to find peace in life. We become the stereotypical old man or woman in the rocking chair, pointing the finger at everyone else. And the cynical approach, it's doing the opposite of the sentimental approach. Rather than ignoring the suffering, it's looking only at the suffering. It focuses only on our disappointments. And at first glance, that seems more realistic. But what you quickly find is that for the cynic, disappointment still retains control over them. Disappointment still defines their life, and it prevents them from moving through their suffering and pain towards a full and free life. There's a great quote from Paul E. Miller in his book, A Praying Life, describing this. He said, cynicism creates a numbness toward life. Cynicism begins with a wry assurance that everyone has an angle. Behind every silver lining is a cloud. The cynic is always observing, critiquing, but never engaging, loving, or hoping. To be cynical is to be distant. While offering a false intimacy of being in the know, cynicism actually destroys intimacy. It leads to bitterness that can deaden and even destroy the spirit. So sentimentality can't deal with our disappointments because it ignores them. But cynicism can't deal with our disappointments because it's defeated by them. And so we are people in desperate need of another way. We need the kind of life that can confront and name the real darkness, the real disappointment, the real pain of our world, and yet navigate it with real hope, with real joy and peace and love. We need a life that can defy our disappointments. And as it turns out, Jesus and the scriptures point to that kind of life. In fact, throughout the millennia, Christians have chosen to set aside this particular time of the year, this time of Advent, in order to reflect again on the story of Jesus' arrival in the world and what that signifies for us, how that actually gives us a defiant way of living in a world of darkness. And so this Advent, we're beginning a teaching series called Defiance. Each week, we're going to examine the promises, one promise from the prophet Isaiah about the coming of Jesus the Messiah into the world and how the power of his arrival prompts us to embody a different virtue of defiance in our broken world. And that word defiance is not a word that we use very often in our culture, and when we use it, it's often negatively framed. So I think it's helpful to define defiance real quick. To defy something, according to the dictionary, means these three things. It means, one, to confront with the assured power of resistance or to disregard. But it also means to resist attempts at or to withstand. And finally, it means to challenge to do something considered impossible, to dare. In short, to defy means to disregard, to withstand, and to dare. We believe that the arrival of Christ in our world prompts us to do just those things to practice defiant hope in the world of hopelessness, defiant peace in the midst of peacelessness, defiant joy in the midst of joylessness, defiant love in the midst of lovelessness. 
And today, uh, we get to practice and uh, reflect upon the first of those virtues, the practice of defiant hope. So friends, if you have a Bible, open it with me uh, to the book of Isaiah. This is near the ends of your Old Testaments, if you're flipping there. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7, reading from verse 1 through verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. In other words, it'll be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram and king Pekah of Remaliah of Israel, went up to attack Jerusalem, but could not mount an attack against it. When the house of David heard that Aram had allied itself with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say this to him, Take heed, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Because Aram, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and cut off Jerusalem and conquer it for ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, no longer a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the good and choose the evil. I'm sorry, refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread Will be deserted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Isaiah 7 starts basically with a news headline. There's a new king facing imminent invasion. Uh, the year is 735 BCE and a new king named Ahaz has recently come to power in Judah. At this time in Israel's history, uh, the nation had been split into two nations. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Ahaz is the king of Judah in the south. And so far, he hasn't exactly been a shining example of leadership. First, he actually turned away actively from the laws of God. He didn't bring justice and peace and care for the marginalized, the vulnerable, the poor. Instead, he's doubled down on his own glamour, his own prestige, his own power. He mimicked the excessive indulgence of the kings around him in their worship of money and power, and he's corrupted the religious establishment. He even chose at one point to sacrifice his own son to a foreign god, Moloch. And more than this, he's actively leading Judah down this path of corruption and evil. And Ahaz also finds himself in a leadership crisis. Only a few years into his reign, he is being surrounded by enemies. His capital city in Jerusalem is being actively threatened. And see, at this time, there's uh, an empire rising in the east, Assyria. 
This is a big, bad empire that's threatening all these other smaller nations around them. And so many of these smaller nations are growing fearful. They're starting to build alliances. And what we learn is that Israel, called Ephraim in this text, Israel has aligned with other small nations, and they are building their own force. And now they are pressing in on Judah. They're saying, hey, we need to take over Judah and take all this land so that we can adequately fight Assyria. So Ahaz is in a tough spot. Assyria, this big bad empire, though they will come and conquer him, but he's also actively being conquered or pressed in on by Israel. He has to wonder what to do with this situation. This is your average Monday in global politics. And so Ahaz figures he has no choice but to make the enemy of his enemies his friend. He says, I've got to go and seek partnership with Assyria. They'll protect me. They'll take care of me. They'll provide me security, the thing that I'm looking for. His instinct in a time of distress and disappointment is to turn to politics and turn to the gods of his surrounding culture in order to protect him and give him life. But before he can run off to Assyria, God sends him a prophet, Isaiah. And within the narrative, that's actually pretty remarkable because Ahaz at this point has done nothing to deserve hearing from God. He's actually actively turned away from God and been entirely opposed to God's justice and peace in life. And yet God still comes to him. That's a remarkable reminder for us in this story that even in our worst, God takes initiative to love and save. And so Isaiah shows up to the king. He proclaims God's message. He says that God can deliver Ahaz from his enemies and that even God himself will be with his people to bring them strength and hope in the midst of this distressing time. God will show up. He will be with the people. And the instruction to Ahaz is simple. He's just got to do one thing in verse 4. Don't fear. Don't let your heart grow faint. And then later in verse 9, we hear, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. But Ahaz, still a bit doubtful, because again, not really a whole fan of this God thing. This Yahweh is not really a friend of his. And so God goes a step further. He says, okay, if you don't believe me, I'll give you a sign. Verse 14, the sign is that a young woman will be with child and will bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God will be with you. In short, a baby will be born who will be called God with us, who will be assigned both of God's presence with his people, but also of God's ultimate deliverance that is coming into peace and life and flourishing. And so put right in front of Ahaz are two choices. He can choose to partner with Assyria, or he can choose to have defiant hope in God. Hope that will disregard the apparent strength of his enemies. Hope that will withstand the temptation to trust in cultural and political safety, and hope that we'll dare to believe that God is actually bringing life through this child. In other words, friends, it's right in the middle of his disappointment, it's right in the middle of his distress that God shows up and offers a path through. His disappointment is the moment that carries his good if he's willing to trust God in it. And while most of us in this room that I know of are not dealing with impending armies pressing in on us, Okay, good. I'm glad that's not a thing for anybody in the room. The story still raises an important question for us. What if our disappointments and our letdowns could be carriers of good, like Ahaz's? What if our disappointments and letdowns were secretly gifts? Friends, sometimes those experiences are spiritual and emotional signals telling us that we've placed our hope in the wrong things. Sometimes that's what disappointment is, for us, it's an invitation to recenter ourselves with a defiant hope on the thing that can really sustain us. 
We're disappointed because the false hopes have not worked. There's a synonym for disappointment that's common in our culture, disillusionment. It's another like millennial and Gen Z favorite. We love being disillusioned by everything. Our world is disillusioned with all the stuff we've placed our hopes in. And at first we think, again, that's just a bad word, but consider the word more deeply. To be disillusioned, it just means to have all of the illusions that we placed our hopes in exposed to reality. That's all it means. It's the revealing of false or incomplete hope. And the truth is that that's something we oftentimes need in our lives. Because so much of our lives we spend chasing after false hopes, chasing after things that won't really satisfy us. Sometimes we need to be disillusioned with those things. Sometimes we need to be disappointed. And so friends, sometimes a good way to trace where God might be calling to you is to examine where you've been disappointed or let down lately. Start there. That's where he meets Ahaz. It might be where he meets you. Where has something failed to give you ultimate security or peace? Where has something provided you less than it promised? Because it's in those spaces, in the middle of the pain and loss, that God might just be beckoning to you, might be leading you towards defiant hope. But that also leads us to a second question. What does that kind of hope look like? Because in our culture, hope is kind of juvenile. We view it as a sort of just something that's reserved for kids. Us grown adults in the world, us really smart and wise people, we don't hope. Hope conveys a lack of confidence. We think of it as a last resort when nothing else seems to work, naive optimism. But hope in the scriptures is way different than that. Hope in the scriptures is actually supreme confidence, not a lack of confidence. Hope is the confident expectation that good is coming and that that good is rooted in the person and promises of God. And that hope is the fuel that fills our present with energy and life. And in the scriptures, it's never a last resort. It's actually the default posture to life. Hope is what the entire follower of God is supposed to be fueled by through and through. Which means hope definitely has to do with the future, but more than anything, it has to do with the present. It fuels us now. I like uh, how theologian and pastor Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, hope is not about the future. Hope is about the present, which obviously has to do with the future but it is a virtue that is cultivated in the present. It fills the present with energy. It connects the two comings of Jesus that we are now to participate in them. Look, I don't know one thing about the future, he says. I don't know what the next hour will hold. There may be sickness, accident, personal or world catastrophe. Before this day is over, I may have to deal with death, pain, loss, rejection. Still, despite my ignorance and despite my being surrounded by tinny optimists and cowardly pessimists, those sentimental and cynical people, I say that God will accomplish his will, and I cheerfully persist in living in the hope that nothing will separate me from Christ's love. That's what hope looks like. There's a a great scene in uh, The Lord of the Rings that expresses this notion well. Yes, a couple smiles. I knew I'd get a couple nods of approval. This guy knows Lord of the Rings. Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, who are three of the main heroes in the story, they're leading an epic battle against the forces of evil and oppression at Helm's Deep. But eventually, in this story, they grow weary. The evil just keeps coming. They keep pouring over the walls. It seems like there's no way they're going to win. Their men are falling down around them left and right. It seems like there's no hope. And when they're ready to give up, suddenly, in the distance up on the hillside, appears the resurrected Gandalf who in the story is a wizard that is more powerful than any of these armies. And he has reinforcements with him, the Rohirrim. 
The Rohirrim are a fighting force surely capable of turning this battle and defeating evil outright. And so Aragorn, he looks up to the hillside. He sees Gandalf. He smiles. And that is what causes him to continue to fight. Gandalf on the hillside gave him hopeful anticipation. He had a knowledge that at that point the battle was going to be won. It wasn't won yet, but it was going to be won. And that knowledge enabled him to keep fighting. That knowledge prevented him from giving up. His hope in the coming power of Gandalf and the Rohirrim is what enables him to fight with courage in the present. That is what the Bible is inviting us to. That is what God is inviting Ahaz to. Supreme confidence in the promise and character of God on the hillside, in the middle of our disappointment, in the middle of our distress. That's what God is inviting every one of us into. And there's a few different aspects of this kind of defiant hope that we see in this passage. We see its importance and application here in three ways. We see the necessity of defiant hope, the object of defiant hope, and the way to defiant hope. It's necessity, it's object, it's way. First, the necessity. What the story of Ahaz is communicating to us is that the only way we can properly respond to loss, to pain, to disappointment, and distress in our lives is by having hope in something that goes beyond those circumstances. Ahaz, the only way he can deal with all of these uh, foreign enemies oppressing him is to believe that something has final word over those powers. That's the only way he can live well here. And that remains true for us. The only way that we can deal with our disappointment, with our pain, with our circumstances, our own inevitable sufferings, the only way we can deal with it is with hope. Hope that those things don't win. Hope that allows us to look right in the eyes of those things and say, you don't have the final word. One of the greatest books written in the 20th century is a testament to this necessity of hope. It's called Man's Search for Meaning by a guy named Viktor Frankl. Frankl was a physician that lived through the concentration camps during the Holocaust. And after the war, he ended up putting together his reflections on this experience in this book. And he spent considerable time in the book talking about the specific traits that best equipped people to endure the concentration camps. He thought about, well, why did this person make it and this person didn't? Why did this person give up and this person didn't? And remember, he's a doctor, so he's thinking about mental factors, he's thinking about physical factors, but what he found is that the one trait that enabled people to endure best was not physical strength, it was not the most food or the best nutrients, it was hope. Hope. Here's what he wrote. If a prisoner lost hope in his future, he was doomed. One of my friends in the camp had a dream about the war, that it would end on March 30th. He was convinced the dream was a revelation. But as the date drew nearer, it became clear from the news reports that the war was not ending. And so on March 29th, he began running a temperature. On March 30th, he lost consciousness. And on March 31st, he was dead. His loss of hope had lowered his body's resistance to all the diseases in the camp. And he finishes with this thought. Only life in a concentration camp exposes your soul's foundation. Only a few of the prisoners were able to keep their full inner liberty and strength. And he closes with this amazing statement. Life only has meaning in any circumstances if we have a hope that neither suffering, circumstances, nor death itself can destroy. Life only has meaning in any circumstances if we have a hope that neither suffering, circumstances, nor death can destroy. Defiant hope. 
hope that transcends circumstances is a necessity, friends. That's precisely why you can see people in exactly the same painful circumstances fold up in one case and thrive in another. It's not actually about the circumstances themselves. It's about the hope they carry with them into those circumstances. That's what enables them to face those things well. Example of this. Imagine two guys who work the exact same job. And it's a brutal job. Long hours, cubicles, fluorescent lighting, a terrible boss, no benefits or vacations, what many of us in America have to deal with, right, in our jobs. But imagine, one of these guys was promised $15,000 at the end of the year for his work. And imagine the other one was promised $15 million at the end of his year. Do you think their experience of the work will be different? Yes, absolutely, right? One of them is going to feel completely overwhelmed and two weeks in is going to be ready to give up. But the other one will say, well, you know, I can endure this because of the hope that I know is coming. And that doesn't mean their circumstances are somehow good or that somehow he can deal with it sentimentally. There's probably still grief in the person working this terrible job. But he's able to better navigate it because what he knows is coming. Friends, a well-lived life is entirely determined by the future we believe is coming. A well-lived life in the present is entirely determined by the future that we expect. A well-fought battle is entirely determined by who we know is on the hillside. And that's why the Bible constantly talks about hope. In the New Testament, it's mentioned over 80 times. It's the virtue that gives us the confidence to be truly self-giving, truly loving. We become courageously generous because of the hope that Christ is bringing generosity, eternal generosity. We become courageously forgiving because our hope is that Christ is on the hillside and that all is forgiven in him. We don't need to seek revenge or self-righteousness. We courageously fight injustice because of our hope that Jesus is on the hillside, that justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a never-failing stream. And so we don't have to grow weary in doing good because we know that goodness wins in the end. Hope fuels everything good we do in the world. And so in the middle of our disappointments, in the middle of our circumstances, it is the necessary fuel that enables us to endure. That's the first thing we see here. It is necessary to have this sort of hope. But it's not just that we have hope. It's also important that we have hope in the right object. That's the second thing we see here. That's actually the main question that Ahaz is presented with. The opportunity to hope, not in passing political or social rulers, but in the promise and character of God. That's the question he's looking at. And his response is telling. He says, I will not put the Lord to the test. Translation, I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to choose to trust in this other authority, in this political and social entity, this cultural power. And we don't know why exactly he does that. It might be because he thinks he's being politically shrewd. It might just be because it's the thing that seems right in front of him, most obvious and easy. But whatever it is, he doesn't have the foresight to consider how this hope might ultimately let him down, which it does in the end, by the way. Assyria, this apparent ally and object of hope, eventually lays siege to Jerusalem, destroys Ahaz and the city. And so what he thought would bring him life and peace and safety fails to deliver. It actually leads him and the people further into darkness, into despair. And so what Ahaz presents for each of us is a simple foundational question that we have to answer. What is the object of your ultimate hope? What's the object of your ultimate hope? What's the thing that you place your ultimate hope in? See, everyone hopes in something. Humans are hope-based creatures. As Franco observed, we literally can't live without hope in something. And if you look around our world, people are chasing around all sorts of things rooted in a hope 
that those things will satisfy them. Underneath the overworking employee is often hope that the career that they're pursuing will give them a lasting identity. Underneath the pursuit of marriage or relationship is often hope that it can provide complete love and satisfaction. Underneath the purchase of another home or another car is often hope that material comforts will provide us lasting peace. Underneath everything we do is hope. And the worldly things we hope in, by the way, not inherently bad. Your job, not a bad thing. Political party, not a bad thing. Your relationship, not a bad thing. Those are all ways that we can partner with God to bring life and flourishing into the world. But when we make those things the ultimate hope, when we make those things the object of our life, they will never satisfy us. They will always crumble below us. Put your ultimate hope in a relationship and you'll quickly find that that person lets you down routinely. Ask anyone in here who's been married for any length of time. Our language and our culture of falling out of love is just evidence that we've put too much hope in our relationships to give us complete satisfaction. And so when the feeling goes away, all of a sudden we've fallen out of love. That's not what love is. Put your ultimate hope in your health or your beauty and you'll die a million deaths with every wrinkle that arises and every joint that aches. I learned from playing pickleball on Tuesday. <laughs> a primary reason our culture is so terrified of death is that we've placed too much hope in our lasting health, as if we're going to last forever. Put your ultimate hope in your career, and you'll find that there is never enough work to satisfy the longing in your soul. That nothing you ever do will ever be really enough. And then, even if those things don't crumble underneath us, they will devour us eventually. Put your hope in money and materiality and soon you'll be someone who never quite has enough, who can never quite get enough. One of the richest men who ever lived, John D. Rockefeller, who was once interviewed, he was asked when the limit would be, how much he would eventually want to pursue. How much money is enough, he was asked. He said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Put your hope in intelligence and you'll find yourself always feeling a little dumb, a little like a fraud, a little like an imposter. No amount of books, no amount of podcasts can ever do it for you. Friends, our worldly hopes will only ever crumble before us or devour us outright. We need defiant hope in a better object. Defiant hope that goes beyond Assyria, that goes beyond circumstances that will change or disappear. Defiant hope in something eternal. And this passage finally shows us the way to that sort of hope. Remember the promise of God through Isaiah. A child who will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The object of defiant hope is a child but not just any child, a child who is in some sense God's good presence amidst the people and God's power to bring true life and peace and flourishing amidst his people. In other words, the way to defiant hope for Ahaz is to trust that God is with him and for him, that God is already up on that hillside and to allow his entire life to be defined by that truth. All his decision-making and all his anxiety and all his disappointment. And even though Ahaz fails to practice that defiant hope in the passage, God's promise endures beyond this passage. That's the thing about God. Even when we fail, well, his promise remains. He's committed to our good and to the world's good. And so Ahaz's decision ultimately leads to empire after empire conquering Judah, but eventually those empires are defeated and God brings this promised child. And he does it in an incredibly ironic way. The child actually comes through a descendant of Ahaz, the one who refused to trust in this child, well, his descendant, Will. His descendant's name is Joseph. His wife's name is Mary. They practice defiant hope in the midst of their own disappointment and distress. 
Mary was visited by an angel and told that the Son of God, the one who would come to bring lasting peace and justice in the world, was coming in and through her. And Joseph was visited in a dream. He was told that the conception of Mary was sparked by the Spirit of God, not by some funny business. And that this son will be the promised Messiah who dies and takes away the sins of the world. And so they both are presented with the same choice as Ahaz. Will they practice defiant hope in this God? Will they disregard the cultural shame that will be heaped upon them for having a baby out of wedlock? Will they withstand the persecution and death threats that come from Herod, a king in their time who wanted this baby dead? Will they dare to trust that God is at work in this boy, bringing lasting peace in and through them? And with humility and courage, both Mary and Joseph choose to trust in God's character and promises. They choose to believe that this is a God who saves. They choose to hope in that God on the hillside. The God who Mary says in Luke 1 scatters the proud, brings down powerful oppressors from their thrones, and lifts up the lowly, fills the hungry with good things, whose mercy is for every generation. They choose to allow their hope in that God shape all of their lives, to defy what they see around them, and to give their lives to that God. And they become the vehicle of redemption and restoration to the entire world. Their hope changes history. And so friends, this story of Ahaz's failure, it's an arrow pointing us to the way of defiant hope. This isn't just a promise given to a king in ancient Judah. It's a promise passed down through his descendants and passed down to us as well. You might remember the story when the shepherds are in their field. The angels come to them and proclaim the arrival of this child. They say this, good news. This child is good news that will cause great joy for all people. Not just Mary and Joseph, not just Judah, not just Israel. All people. It includes us. See, we're presented with the same choice as Ahaz, the same choice as Joseph and Mary. We have the same choice to place our hope in Emmanuel, in God with us, to entrust ourselves to the humble and merciful and just and powerful God, to hope, receive his forgiveness, which heals our sin, to hope and receive his peace, which endures even in the darkness, to hope and receive the good news that those who are in need and the peacemakers and the meek and the humble and those who hunger and thirst for goodness and justice can all look to the hillside in the middle of their battles and disappointments and know that Christ reigns, that Christ is coming again, that the battle will be won. And when we choose to trust in that God with us, we find a hope that does not disappoint, as Paul says. We find a strength that surpasses all others and enables us to live and fight with a new sort of vigor. We find a life that is transformed and transforms the world. You guys, Advent isn't just a season of waiting around for gifts until the 25th. It is a season for hearts that are full of disappointment. Hearts that have sadness and regret and confusion. Who have hard questions to ask and dark emotions to look at. In the middle of all those things, it's a season for defiant hope. A time where we cling to the good news that God is on the hillside. You do not fight in the dark alone. Emmanuel is with you, and Emmanuel is coming. Light arrives in the darkness. May that good news infuse all of your thoughts and words and deeds this week, in this season. And may we become a community of defiant hope.